You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. If you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, we are in Genesis chapter 9, and we are going to be studying verses 18 all the way to 28. So Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 28. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have plenty here. We want you to be in God's holy word, uh, the word that he has revealed himself to us through as he's written those scriptures by the Holy Spirit through men and delivered to us and preserved for us to study his nature. Well, as we return again to the book of Genesis here this morning, we return to, again, this chapter 9, where we're going to look at verses 18 to 28. We're going to return to the story of Noah as he and his family and all the animals disembark from the ark and they step out into new beginnings. They really are stepping out into a new Genesis where God has a hard reboot, a restart on his creation. As the wicked have been destroyed through a year-long baptism by the flood, the old has gone, right? The new has come. We've seen that even last weekend in Anna's baptism. We see that in the, in the baptism of the flood here as well. But what do we see here with Noah's first response? Last week we saw that, uh, or the week before we saw that the grace of God was on display as Noah himself, his first resort was to go to worship. We saw that he built an altar of worship to the Lord, and he sacrificed clean animals to the Lord. And as the Lord received this worship, it pleased him to the point of making a promise to never wipe out the earth by a flood again. And so he put the bow in the clouds, the rainbow, as a reminder to him that he will not flood the earth. It is also a reminder of judgment that is to come. His wrath is coming to judge the earth. But as the Lord received this worship, it pleased him, and therefore he made covenant promise to Noah and to the world. Now, if we're looking at, uh, at Noah's life here, and as we're seeing him step out of this ark and he embarks upon this new creation, this is a restart. It's a reboot. It's a, it's a redo of the beginning. And so Noah has, I would say, probably a lot of pressure on him Right after this huge catastrophic flood, we're asking the question, did Noah learn the lesson? Did we learn the lesson? Did we learn the lesson of the tree in the garden? Did we learn the lesson of the cursing of Cain? Did we learn the lesson of this catastrophic flood? I mean, just put yourself in Noah's shoes, or probably sandals, I would guess. As all of this was just so recent and so raw and so real, What other option did his heart have but to just constantly rejoice in the Lord? For him to be forever grateful that God would choose to save him and his family. Like, just imagine that if that was you. Like, Lord, why me? Why would you save just me and my family? What would that do for your worship of him? Like, thank you, God. I love you, God. I'm going to live for you, God, all of my days. I mean, just think about how God so lavished his grace upon him. And we also think about how God so lavishly uh, graced us. How would we respond? 
Because of your grace, God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to obey you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to turn away from my sin. You know, that same sin that you judge the earth for. I'm going to be pure. I'm going to be upright. I'm going to do what's right. You ever have that kind of conversation with God? After you just realize what he has brought you through, maybe a storm in your life or a season in your life, and again, you realize the lavish grace of God towards you, and you might think, God, I'm going to do it right this time. And so with all the realness and the rawness and the grace of it all, as we look to the text here, it's on Noah, it's on his family to get it right. It's up to him to prevail where Adam failed and where Eve failed and where Cain failed and where the world failed. So let me ask you, as we turn to this text today, how did they make out? How did they fare? And what does it have to teach us? And ultimately, why does it matter? So let's look at chapter 9, verses 18 to 28. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham the father of, or sorry, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy word here this morning, as we come into church, the gathering of the saints here, we all walk through those doors from different experiences, different experiences in life, different joys, different struggles, different suffering, different sin. And Lord, as we approach this text, as we see how quickly we return to sin, May this be just a day of confession and repentance of our fallenness, a reminder of the amazing grace that you have showered upon us in spite of us. May your Holy Spirit be at work within, transforming us as only he can, as he uses his word to do the work, to renew our minds, to transform our hearts, to change our actions. God, we pray that as we sit under your holy word here this morning, that we would feel the weight, but we would also rejoice in the glory of Christ revealed through the scriptures. And so we pray today for your blessing upon this service, upon these people, upon our time together, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. 
<clears throat> well, friends, as we can clearly see here, even though God cleansed the whole world, even though he had one righteous man left and one family left, sin itself was not fully quenched. Now, what we see here is that sin survives. In fact, sin sprouts and sin spreads. The truth is, is that wherever man is, there you will find sin. Wherever the best intentions are, you are still going to find failure. That even though we as Christians are the remnant here like Noah and we are freshly saved just like Noah and just like the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses, though we have tasted the beauty and the glory of salvation, friends, sin is still a problem. Right? The old man still rises up. The old lady within still rises up. So what do we do about it? Well, as we study this today and apply it to ourselves, the first thing we see here in this is that when it comes to Noah's sin, and then when it comes to Ham's sin as well, is that we need to first be alarmed. We need to be alarmed at our quickness to sin. Be alarmed at our quickness to sin. I mean, just look at how quickly this happens. Look at how just in, in basically one sentence, one section, Noah is worshiping the Lord, he's sacrificing to the Lord, but in the next, Noah is drunk and naked. Like this is biblical whiplash going on here. And so it is with God's people. And friends, we can't be okay with this. We should be alarmed by this. This should alarm our souls. And so as we look at the text, it says... In verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then it says specifically here, Ham was the father of Canaan. So put a pin in that, and we're going to get back to that. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Verse 19 says, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these people, or from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So as you look back to the beginning, as we all came from Adam and Eve, here as the world again has been rebooted by God through this flood, we now all come through Noah. And we all come specifically through these three brothers, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In fact, next week we're going to see how these, these three men and their offspring are going to spread to three different regions in, in the world, and they're going to multiply, and they're going to fill the world. So the first section here serves as a, a prologue. It's setting us up for what's next, as the text is going to now dial into what's happening with Noah. It says in verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil. And he planted a vineyard, right? As Noah probably would have, he would have been done with boat building probably by this time, right? Now it seems that he's going to be a gardener. He's probably also done with tending animals after a year on the ark with them. And we now see him returning to the original profession, the original trade of our very first father, Adam. And so we see him here uh, giving himself to horticulture. It says that he is a man of the soil. 
So Noah at this time was probably 601 years old. He was 600 years when the flood came and the flood took about a year. He could be about 601 or so. And in that old age, he has become a gardener. And as we're walking through this, I want you to take note of the motifs that are being shared here. How after the flood of water, creation is beginning again. And there is one man and his family, but there is a man on display here. And it says that he is a man of the soil. That should remind us of Adam, right? From dust you came. And we see also here that there's the motif of a garden here. And then we see this command from verse 1, from chapter 9, to, to multiply and fill the earth. So very much what we're seeing here again is a picture of Genesis. It's a picture of beginnings once again. As Noah tends to his garden specifically here, we see that he is a winemaker. He is a vintner. He is growing, he is growing a, a garden of grapes. Now, I wouldn't want to think of this as just a few days after the flood. As we're looking at, he, he's growing a vineyard here. The text gives us some highlights as to how long this would have taken. If you study uh, how a vineyard grows, it takes a long time for a vineyard to mature enough to make wine. In fact, it takes about three to four years before grapes are viable to produce enough wine for production. And so Noah would have been at this probably for a few years already, caring and tending and testing and, and figuring it all out until finally his grapes are now producing. And so he would have enough grapes to harvest he would have taken those grapes, he would have pressed them, and then he would have allowed enough time for fermentation to take place, which usually is about two to three weeks. And then if you want to also age wine, that's about three to four months. So we see all of this labor up to this point, him preparing this garden until he arrives at the time of reward for his hard and careful labor. And it says in verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk. He became drunk. Just as Adam and Eve's sin came through the consumption of fruit, we also see here that Noah's sin came through the consumption of the fruit, the juice of the fruit. Forbidden fruit in the case of Adam and Eve, too much wine from the fruit in Noah's case. To the point that Noah becomes inebriated, and he becomes so drunk that he ends up laying uncovered in his tent. That Noah was so utterly wasted that he ended up shamefully naked. In fact, the way this phrase is being used in the Hebrew, it gives the sense here that Noah actually uncovered himself. This wasn't an accident. Friends, as Noah consumed too much alcohol, his inhibitions were removed, which at its end, resulted in him disgracing himself, exposing himself, with, which just practically in Noah's case here, it was just, it led to physical nakedness. And when you think about it, you think about that, you think about that action of Noah, this is the same righteous man, this is the same above reproach man, who normally and soberly he would have known all about the shame of nakedness from his very first parents, right? He is the blameless one. He is the one that walked with God. He is the one that, the, that it, was, it was promised that he was going to relieve the world of its toil and pain. 
And he's also the one that God remembered, right, in the flood. This guy is now here, shamefully lying, bare naked, in his tent, stone cold, sinfully drunk. Well, friends, according to God, drunkenness is sin. And this is the first of many instances in the Bible that warn about the serious issues that arise over the overconsumption of alcohol. Although the Bible never outright condemns the drinking of alcohol, it does seriously warn about drinking. And it does absolutely condemn drunkenness. Right? Proverbs 21. Wine is a brawler, strong drink, a mocker. Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So, drunkenness is a sin. This is the first time we see it in the scriptures. And the fallout of this drunkenness leads to Noah's absolute shame. Absolute shame. Now, some suggest that there was more than just nakedness going on here. That this nakedness is also alluding to some kind of lewdness. There's probably some room for that. It it may even lead to some sort of sexual immorality especially as Leviticus 20, which Moses also writes, speaks about uncovered nakedness in this way. So that's possible, but that's not fully revealed here in the scriptures. But whatever the case, the point is that the one who so quickly worshipped the Lord when he disembarked the ark is now the one who has so quickly fallen into sinful shame. The same man who before the Lord obeyed God in everything is the same man lying shamefully exposed. Friends, Noah is a sinner just like the rest. He's a sinner who so quickly gave himself to sin. So the first thing we need to see here is that no man or no woman, no person, no matter how holy and righteous they may be, no matter how strong they may seem, is not at risk is not free from the risk of falling. Noah's 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That goes for Noah as well. And so as we're reading this, we remember the Israelites, as they're hearing this, the Israelites, they they would have elevated Noah, right? He would have been a status of model faith for them as he should be. And as they are to hear of his shame here, it's to also remind them that he is a sinner like the rest. Right? As much as God purged out sinful mankind through the flood, that flood did not purge out sin. No, the seed of sin survived the flood. It quickly germinated within the fertility of fallen human hearts, specifically here in Noah. And then we also see that in the generations to come. So Noah quickly gave himself to sin, but we also see that with his one son here, very particularly with Noah's son Ham in verse 22. It says, and Ham, the father of Canaan, that's important, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. What we're seeing here is that sin is leading to sin, which is also leading to more sin. For Ham, it seems quite peculiar 
how it took place for him, right? That as his father so exposed himself in drunken nakedness, the text just says that he saw the nakedness of his father and then went and told his two brothers. Now again, there is speculation that more be at play here. That as Leviticus chapter 18 and 20 teaches about this phrase, uncovering, uncovering of nakedness, it ties it to sexual immorality. This may be the first indication of a sin of something indecent going on. Now again, we're not 100% sure. The text does not explicitly say, but nonetheless, what do we see here? And what we do see here explicitly is that there is something seriously sinful in the way that Ham looked at his father's nakedness. Especially when you consider the fallout for this. So it could mean something illicit. We're not 100% sure, but what we do know is that as his father disgraced himself and as he observed this disgrace, the way that Ham responded wasn't one of respect. It was one of absolute disrespect. He didn't immediately cover his eyes and and then cover his father up like his brothers are going to do. No, it seems he relished in his father's shame to the point of running out and telling his brothers. And again, like drunkenness, the Bible is replete with warning, warning people about of sons disrespecting their fathers, children disrespecting their parents. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Even how disobedience to parents in the Bible is also listed alongside some of the most serious sins. Just go read Romans 1. And so as we see here how sin has so quickly returned in Noah and in his son, it should be alarming. It should be alarming to us at how quickly sin returns on the scene. But isn't that the way it always is, friends? Right, that wherever we are, Wherever humanity is, there is a quickness to sin. I mean, just think about the first audience to hear these words. Think about Moses here in in, uh, writing Genesis. Think about the Israelites who are with him. Think about them who were just saved miraculously across the parting of the Red Sea. And think about how quickly they returned to Egypt in their minds by building a golden calf and worshiping the calf instead of God. How quickly sin came back for them. It's the same with Noah and his son here. Right? They just witnessed the flood of the whole world. And they just witnessed God's glorious salvation for them. Yet here they are again, so shamefully and so quickly steeped in sin. So as Moses is writing this to his people from the Lord, he's he's preparing them. He's preparing them for the inclination that they all have inside, that, that they too are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, right? We're prone to wander. We sing that. Friends, when we think about this, we need to think about our own lives. We need to think about our own sin. We need to think about how quickly we can run to it. Like Proverbs 7, as the fool plays around with the tempting adulteress, as he plays with his lust, 
Proverbs 7, 22 to 23 says this, all at once he follows her. That's the quickness to sin. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. All at once. All at once. Men, just think about the quickness to lust. Think about the quickness to immorality. Think about the quickness to pornography. All at once. Women as well. Even though you may be focusing and trying to focus on, on, on being a person, a, a person that, that is concerned with the hidden person of the heart, right? The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, as Peter says. How you can be focused on that, but in the next moment, you're finding yourself falling back into a spiral of external appearances, playing that comparison game again. Or kids, or youth among us, how you may tell mom and dad, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that again, but yet within minutes, you're back doing it again. Proverbs 26, 11 says it probably the most boldly. It says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. If you have dogs, you know how true that is. The Lord is not speaking about dogs, he's speaking about us. Friends, this is who Noah and his sons are, and this is who we are, and it should be alarming. We should never be okay with it. So let me ask you, besides those examples I gave, which sins are you quickly running to? Which ways do you have the best intentions, but within a moment of weakness, you find yourself back in the depths of that sin again? Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's cheating. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's stealing. Maybe it's slothfulness. Maybe it's envy, hatred, murder of the heart, immorality, adultery, or like Noah, maybe it's drunkenness. Or maybe it's one of the other, many other flavors of sin. Which ones, friends? Which ones? And then, with, and with that, what are you doing about it? Are you so alarmed at the quickness of the return of that sin that you are willing to do something about it? Like Jesus said, if your arm causes you to sin, what do you do with it? You cut it off. Are you willing to cut off access to it? Are you willing to put some barrier between you to slow the quickness down? Are you willing to give yourself to accountability? That's one of the beauties of small group ministry. You get to be a part of a small collection of people as the men and women get together, and then in regroups when just the men get together with the men, just the women get together with the women, and you can be real. You can be honest. You can be accountable. Accountable to put off the old man and to put on the new. So friends, let's let that alarming nature of the quickness to sin drive and fuel our hearts and give us resolve to get serious about it in the strength of the Spirit. So first point was be alarmed. Be alarmed at our quickness to sin on display in Noah and Ham. And so as Noah was drunk and naked and his son Ham uh, was, was also sinfully seeing his father's nakedness, there are two other brothers 
And as Ham went and and told his brothers what happened, the way that they responded to their father's nakedness was unlike Ham. Now what we see with these two brothers is that their response was reverent, it was respectful, and it was careful. And it ultimately leads to their reward in this text. So we're going to see that they are going to receive a reward of blessing, and Ham is going to face the consequences. So first, let's have a look at this in verse 23, that we need to be aware of the consequence of sin. Verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So again, unlike Ham, Shem, and Japheth, they basically do everything they can to avoid sinning here. We see them protecting themselves, we see them making a barrier to keep them from sinning, and even more than that, we see that they even minister to their father by covering up his shame. Covering up his shame. Again, there's a reflection of the garden going on here, this covering of shame. These two brothers are coming along, taking the blanket, and they're covering their father's shame. So they cover him, right? Love covers a multitude of sins. And because of this, we're going to see that they will be rewarded. But for Ham, Ham is going to have some dire consequences. There's even generational consequences going on here. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Now take note here. It doesn't say cursed be Ham. It says cursed be Canaan. Then it says, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. So whatever Ham had done to him, it had to be serious enough to produce such a cursing. I don't think that this was some sort of an accidental glimpse going on here. This had to be more. As it says that Noah knew what his youngest son had done to him, whatever it was, it was serious enough that Noah then pronounces a curse upon him. Again, when we're thinking about cursing, Remember, who was the first cursed in the garden? The serpent was cursed in the garden. Cursed are you, Satan. But in this case, it says, cursed be Canaan. Not Ham, but Canaan. Which in our minds should immediately sound strange. Why would Noah curse his grandson, Canaan? Why wouldn't he just curse Ham, the one who committed the sin? Why did he do that? Well, as we always have to remember the author, we always have to remember the authorial context as well. So let me ask you, to see if you've been picking up what we've been learning through Genesis, let me ask you, who write, who's, who's writing the book of Genesis? Moses, right? Yeah. When was Moses writing this book? Can't hear you, but I'll answer for you. Um, during the Exodus. And who is Moses writing this book to? Right? He's writing it to the Israelites. So Moses is in the wilderness, in the Exodus, and he's writing to the Israelites who are with them, the Holy Spirit writing through him, 
And he's writing it just before these, pe- these people are going to enter into the promised land, which is also known as what? The land of Canaan, okay? So as we see here mentioned, Canaan's name here is mentioned actually five times in this section. Although that doesn't really mean much for Noah's context, it is his grandson, it means a ton in Moses' context. It means a lot in the context of the original audience. As Moses is writing of the cursing of Ham's offspring, and as he's anticipating Israel's entrance into the promised land, which is the land of Canaan, he's preparing his people to get ready for what they're about to face. In Deuteronomy 7, we learn that as God brings his people into the promised land, that the Lord is going to destroy the Canaanites through them. His people are going to be called to defeat the people in the promised land. The text says that they need to devote them to complete destruction. That as the Israelites are going to make war with the Canaanites, Moses is basically showing them here that this is where it all started. That the sins of the sons of Canaan was born in the, the sons of their father, or the, their father Ham. That the wickedness of the whole Canaanite generation was first characterized in the sinful act of Ham himself. And this is what Hebrew theology would call generational sin. Not in the sense that just because Ham sinned, they all have to pay the price, but rather in the sense that as sin begets more sin, Ham's sinful ways would be passed down through his parenthood of his progeny, his his children, his offspring. For example, try to understand that as, as a father observes his father ways, he often does things just like his father, right? I mean... In a simple way, in, in the Whitford family, when it comes to the men, we're Ford men, right? We drive Fords. Very simplistic. As a father teaches a son, though, he also learns to do things like his father does it. He often picks up his father's character, his father's ways, for good or for bad. And so in this case of Ham, he would have passed down his evil ways. And, and isn't that the way that it often goes? Just think about how families operate. Families often operate on different levels of morality. As one father may teach his family that you pay for what you need, the next father may teach his family you just take what you need. So morality gets passed down and multiplies. I mean, even more so, think about the cycle of abuse in families. That abuse often leads to more abuse. The fact that there is a higher likelihood that someone will abuse someone else if they have been abused themselves. So we could talk a lot more about that, but that is generational sin. We see that going on here with Ham progressed down to the Canaanite people. The Canaanite wickedness was first born in a wicked father, and it was passed down through the generations. In fact, as you study the rest of the book of Genesis, it and how it speaks about the Canaanites, it is not a pretty picture. No, if you were to go study chapter 13, 15, 18, and 19, it reveals that the Canaanites were a seriously corrupt people. And as they settled in the land that was promised to Abraham and his offspring forever, they were spreading corruption all throughout that land. 
And that testimony of corruption also has a tendency towards sexual sin. In fact, when you go and study Leviticus 18, we see Moses describing that the Canaanite people were full of unlawful sexual relations. Leviticus 18.3, halfway through, it says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan for which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And then he goes on to list what they do. In verse 6, he says, None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. To uncover nakedness. What does that sound like? Where have we heard that before? It sounds very similar to what's going on here with, with Noah and then his son Ham. But we see this now characterizing the offspring of Ham, the, the Canaanites, so many years later. Leviticus 18.7 says this, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. And then, he, and then Moses goes on in Leviticus 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 to say the same thing all about family members, denouncing incestuous, or incestuous sin. And so, friends, what we're seeing here in this connection is that these Canaanites that were in the promised land were going to be rightly eradicated. Why? Because of their absolute incestuous, sexual depravity, among other things. So the fact that Canaan is being cursed here in Genesis 9 is a prophetic judgment given against Ham and his offspring, the Canaanites. That they are going to be servants of servants. That means that they are going to be the lowest of the low. In fact, there's a connotation of them being an enemy to Sham and Japheth. Because, why? Because they're enemies to God. They're proving themselves to be the offspring of the serpent, the offspring who is going to be crushed, and that's exactly what happens when Israel enters the promised land as God rightly crushes them through Israel. So all of that to say, sin has consequences. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. And so as Moses mentioned mentions Canaan here five times. He's showing them that, he's showing them the genesis of that evil. That sin has consequences. We, we already saw that so vividly and fully in the flood, but for Ham and his offspring, although it wasn't a flood, it is going to take place much later, but God did not forget. So friend, if you are an unbeliever, you may think that you have all the time in the world. You may think that God's not worried about your sin or what you're doing. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to do all the bad stuff I want. God doesn't care. No, friends, God is very concerned. God does care. As we already saw on the flood, your sin grieves him to his heart. God is forever holy. God is infinitely righteous. God is altogether just. And sin requires his justice. So you may think you're okay because God isn't flooding your world right now with his wrath. But in his time, if you don't turn from your sin, your sinful heart is going to be dealt with. For the Canaanites, 
it came by the sword of Israel. For you it may come to the sword of Christ in the end. Friends, this is the reality. This is the truth. As Canaan was cursed to earthly destruction, the curse of hell is eternal destruction. And so we call you to turn away from your sin. Turn to Christ today. Turn to the one who was cursed for you. Turn to the one who took his shame upon his shoulders. And the one who forgives the worst of sinners. Because you don't know the time or day, but he does. God knows. And for the rest of us here, even as Christians, let us also understand that our sin, our sin still has repercussions. As sin grieved God to his heart before the flood, our sin still grieves the Holy Spirit. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't make us impervious to the consequence of sin. No, as we Christians are still prone to sin, we're still prone to some pretty serious repercussions. For example, although the Lord would forgive repentant liars and gossips, the liar and the gossip may find that people may no longer trust them as they did before. Although the Lord forgives a repentant thief, it doesn't mean that that thief doesn't have to go to jail and do time. Although the Lord forgives a repentant adulterer, the adulterer still may lose his wife and his family. Friends, even for Christians, sin has its consequences. And so it's good to be warned here by the story of Ham. And as much as we are warned here, let, also, let us also refer to the example of Shem and Japheth. Let us, in the same grace that we have been shown, keep ourselves from shame. Let us guard our eyes and our hearts from sin and respond rightly when faced with temptation in the strength that the Spirit provides. Now, as Noah curses, he also blesses. Verse 26, it says, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Friends, if you're catching one reoccurring theme throughout Genesis so far, it is this. Where there is the curse, there is also the what? There is also the blessing. That salvation comes through what? Salvation comes through judgment. And so as we see Noah blessing here, notice that it says that he blesses the Lord. He blesses Yahweh. He blesses the covenant-keeping God. That Shem is actually indirectly blessed through the Lord. And then from him also Japheth as well. Friends, what we're seeing here is that God gets the glory. Right, that he is the one to be praised. He is the one to be blessed. That just as we are to be so alarmed at the quickness of our sin, and we are to be so aware of the consequence for our sin, above all that, we need to be astonished by his grace for sin. That's point number three. Be astonished by his grace for our sin. 
Noah blessed God first. Blessed be the Lord, he says, the God of Shem. What he's saying here is that as the Lord made his covenant promise to Noah, we see the covenant promise being passed down to Shem. That Shem is in right covenant relationship with the Lord. And that he is also going to reap the blessing. Friends, what we're seeing here is that it's all of grace. This is even more clarity for us here as we're studying the scriptures of God's redemptive plan that as it came down from Adam and then from Adam to Seth, it went from Seth to Noah and now it goes from Noah to Shem. This is the promise from the very beginning further unfolding. This is the promised seed of the woman working its way down throughout the generations. That the one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent is now going to come through Shem. In fact, as you study the lineage of Shem in chapter 11, as we're going to do next week, you're going to see that his blessed lineage in chapter 11 ends with a very important person. It ends with Abram, or Abraham. Abraham is the one who through all the nations are going to be blessed, right? So friends, we have to see the awesome plan of God at work here, that as it was promised when we first sinned, God's promise is now further being revealed and it's further being clarified. It's like a scarlet thread that runs from the very beginning and ultimately culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The blessing given to the Lord through Shem right down to Jesus himself. That is the most incredible news that we have to get a hold of. I mean, doesn't that want to make you rejoice? This is the unfolding plan of God, that despite the wickedness of the world, God always comes through. And so Shem here is blessed in the Lord, and then his brother is also blessed in him. As Noah says, he he says, may God enlarge Japheth. That's a blessing for him to multiply. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. He's going to fall under the leadership of his brother. And again, let Canaan be his servant. Verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Friends, this story about Noah that we've been planted in for quite some time is all about grace. It's all about grace. It's something that should absolutely astonish our hearts. This should just cause us to rejoice that despite who we are, God is so good to have the plan before the beginning of time that he's revealing that plan even further and he's going to send his son. And for us, we know 2,000 years ago, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. This all came through this incredible line of promise. Friends, salvation is of the Lord. As we close out this testimony of Noah and the flood and his sin and his sons and their sin, it's just such an incredible story. It's such an unbelievable story in the best sense that although we, like Noah, can so quickly forget the grace of God and the justice of God and so quickly turn to sin, 
That we, like Ham, can also be so depraved in our sin, not counting the cost, not seeing the consequences, that we, those sinners, though we are sinners, that, that we would be graced, that we would be blessed through Jesus Christ. Friends, we don't deserve it. It's all about him, and it's all of him. So as we close out this story of Noah and the flood and the ark and, and now the new world, friends, by the conviction of the word that we have heard, by the power of the spirit who dwells within, by the grace so freely given to the glory of Christ, let us remember when we so quickly fall that Christ was the one who prevailed where we failed. That it's because of him that we can even repent, that we can even get up and keep going as a Christian. Let's remember that when we find ourselves so ashamed and so accursed by our own sin, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, Christ took your curse and he gave you his eternal blessing. You are no longer condemned. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We need to let that fuel our striving. That needs to fuel our motivations to live and, and love for him all the more. And then above all else, let us always be astonished by God's overwhelming grace that as we were so far gone, he came so near. That as we were so depraved and broken that he binds up the brokenhearted. That as we so deserved hell, instead he gives us his eternal blessing through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we can't even comprehend your grace. You have revealed it so fully, but yet it is so overwhelming to even understand that you would shower us with your grace. Such wicked sinners. Father, we acknowledge that before you. We confess that before you here today. That we are lost without you. We're so thankful for this, this story of Noah and the ark and the flood and, and then even Noah's sin. And even the sin of, sin of Ham. How does a reflection of our own hearts, God? We do pray, Lord, that you would continue to be at work. We see your word here as so powerful to transform. That yes, you are a God who judges, but yet you are a God who so graciously saves. May we respond in repentance and faith. May we respond in worship and abiding in you. Lord, even as a church, as we have stepped into this new ministry year and as we're even meeting in small groups and wanting to discipline ourselves for godliness, as we're wanting to study who you are according to your word, may you continue to grow us and mature us, reminding us, again, we need to be alarmed by the quickness to sin. Even as Christians, there are consequences we need to be aware of. But help us to be astonished. Help us to be astonished in you and in you alone. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.